Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Welcome to another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Workforce on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Today, we have a wonderful conversation with Dr. Sherry Erkman. Dr. Erkman is a professor in thoracic medicine and surgery, as well as the Center for Asian Health, and a director of the Lung Cancer Screening Program and director of the Thoracic Surgery Residency Program at Temple University Hospital. We have a fascinating conversation on her life growing up in Colorado, how her mother's career as an atmospheric researcher and storm chaser inspired her, how she saw a career of her own in surgery as the height of a demanding and intellectual challenge, and on her father's battle of lung cancer leading her to our specialty, and finally her commitment and dedication to achieving equity for our patients. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Sherry Erkman. Um, I'm really happy to have you today for our podcast, Same Surgeon, Different Light. I'm so pleased to be here and to speak with you. I think this is a great series. It's been really uh, wonderful to look behind the scenes of some of the surgeons and some of their motivations. So I very much appreciate uh, not only being invited, but you're doing this work. Great, great. Well, Dr. Erkman uh, has many titles and many accolades. Uh, she is a professor of thoracic medicine and surgery at uh, Temple University. Uh, she is the professor of Center for Asian Health and the director of the Lung Cancer Screening Program and the director of Thoracic Surgery Residency Program at Temple University Hospital. And what is a, uh, a not very known uh, fact is that you and I were dorm mates uh, years ago at, at Cal Berkeley. At Clark Kerr. That's exactly yeah. right. Parker <laughs> campus. So all those pre-meds at, at Cal Berkeley who are out there, if you want to become a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, you need to stay at Clark Kerr uh, campus dorm. So I, I think we just blew up the housing lottery uh, uh-huh. at Cal. So, you know, you 
we, we talk about uh, public universities like Boulder, sorry, like Cal, but you have, your family has experience with the University of Colorado at Boulder. Is that where you grew up? It is. I grew up uh, in Boulder and I grew up going to every single CU Buffaloes game. And, uh, you know, we're very, very close with that university. They, they gave both my parents opportunity. Both of my parents were immigrants uh, coming for education. And so I definitely feel indebted not only to the University of Colorado, but public school and the system that really helps us uh, get to our fullest potential. You mentioned your parents. Your your mom was an atmospheric researcher for the NOAA. And when I think of that, I think of the movie Twister and Storm Chasers. You know, what, what was her experience with that? That that was what she did. She was looking at um, how pollution impacts storm patterns. And so she did storm chasing. She went into small aircraft carrier uh, aircraft to collect samples of uh, storms. And, you know, I always look back at her saying, oh, you have to wear your seatbelt, you have to be careful. And then here she is taking the weekend off to chase storms. But nevertheless, I think that, uh, you know, I I gained a lot of um, courage and a lot of uh, vicarious experience with her as a researcher. And she really was one of the very first women researchers looking at climate change. And for me, that was not something new or novel political. It was really just part of a scientific method of getting a hypothesis and coming to conclusions and she'd share her work. It was a great upbringing. And you mentioned climate change and you know that goes hand in hand with uh, air quality and air pollution. Uh, there is some data now that shows that uh, air, air pollution might be a contributing factor to, to lung cancer. Your, your background with your mom, does that provide you with any sort of additional insight in terms of the risk to your patients and your community? Oh, certainly. I mean, she's really looked at this background of how your environment impacts your, your health. And she did look at some early uh, research in tobacco industry, actually. But I think... Uh, She's given me this grounds of understanding that what we do is interconnected, that medicine can't just exist in this world of academia. We really have to understand how our community and the environment within the community impacts our health. And uh, that's become ever more relevant to me practicing in North Philadelphia. You know, you're, you're, mom fled uh, the Japanese invasion of China. And during around that same time uh, with the Japanese occupation of the Philippines, your dad, who was also an immigrant, was part of that uh, incredible uh, uh, part of world history. Right. This is, um, you know, really interesting interplay of how the world dynamics affect you know, individuals. And my dad was actually a, an orphan. Um, he was orphaned around the age of six and he went from, you know, aunts and uncles houses, whoever was kind enough uh, to, to give their generosity, but really at a time of uh, Japanese occupation and post-war recovery, 
he made his way uh, without any education, no primary, secondary, no education, uh, found his way to the United States and uh, matriculated, as we said, at the University of Colorado for his bachelor's degree. So from very, very humble beginnings to uh, being able to be a small businessman, this is really uh, an inspiration. It really shows any hardship that I would ever experience pales in comparison to what both of my parents have had to face. You know, it's, it's incredible when you hear, um, you know, our parents or grandparents, you know, face this type of adversity. Uh, does that influence your career and what you go into? Um, are you sort of a, a, a storm chaser, so to speak, in regards to how you, you, you seek your professional challenges? I think that it did give me the courage to, to go outside of what perhaps my community or, you know, my schooling would expect. It gave me the courage to try it and to fail and to understand that, uh, you know, you can't get there unless you can dream about it. So uh, it sounds kind of uh, corny, but it's definitely helped me shoot for goals that you know, I didn't even think were possible as a high school student or a medical student, just this vague idea that I wanted to be a doctor and then a vague idea that I wanted to be a surgeon. But um, I always had the support to think big. So absolutely, it did help. And my parents and uh, I have an older brother and older sister who were also really supportive, a second set of parents. And I couldn't have done it without without this this huge cheering uh, section of mine. Yeah. And we're, we're going to get into sort of the intersection of that and, and, in your, uh, great work, not only in disparities research, um, but also, uh, D E and I advocacy, uh, as well. Um, but so, you know, eventually you, you, you left the, the, the wonderful snow and, and skiing opportunities, uh, in uh, Colorado, and then um, moved even further west to California. What, what brought you to the Golden State? So, uh, like you, I went to Berkeley and uh, enjoyed that. There was um, a great opportunity within the state system to not only go to undergrad, but to medical school. And UCLA was, and it, it was just one of the most uh, fascinating experiences at the time. We were uh, during the O.J. Simpson trials, and there was a lot of interplay and discussion with our classmates, you know, different perspectives, different experiences of something that was happening right in our neighborhood at that time. So um, that was the beginning of really seeing events and perspectives uh, that I really hadn't had growing up in Colorado. It's very homogeneous in Colorado and moving to California really uh, put a different light on how people see the, the same events. And that was, uh, it was a huge part of developing this groundwork for seeing how people are treated differently, to be frank, uh, in, this, in this land of opportunity. You know, there's you're you're uh, a a active and powerful member of our workforce for diversity and inclusion. 
and um, a, a lot of the activities of this workforce um, are, are not just um, rainbows and unicorns and not everyone's on the same page and and um, um, they're, 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 the discourse is not always easy. You know, back in Berkeley, when we were there, uh, I won't say what years we were there, but it, it wasn't uncommon to, to have difference of opinion and have discussion, and that was okay. You can have a discussion and not have a difference of opinion and, and have a difference of opinion and not try to suppress that individual's voice whose point of view is different from your own. Have you noticed changes in sort of the discourse in healthcare when it comes to diversity and inclusion? And um, um, is that discourse for the better or for the worse or just different? That's a great question. I'm thinking that, uh, you know, when you're young and you're in college that you're open-minded and really coming to learn. And that's a totally different context from well-established thoracic surgeons who are notable experts in their field. And so I think as people start to gain, you know, seniority, that it's only natural that, that you're less open perhaps to, to this discussion. And like you said, it's really difficult. And um, actually, uh, Dr. Ungelarder brought up a concept of curiosity to me last week. And that is fundamental to the first steps of understanding is just to be curious enough to care. And perhaps in college, people are curious, they want to be away from home, they want to see what's out there. It's really a challenge for us as um, thoracic surgeons to keep that curiosity. Maybe there's a different way to look at this problem. Perhaps I've been thinking about this without the perspective of somebody else. And so curiosity, just to open your mind to being, to understanding issues of uh, race or gender or LGBT, you know, we all can learn from that and without judgment, without action, sometimes just that first step of listening is, is hard for, for people in thoracic surgery. Just to be curious enough to care, that's a wonderful phrase that I'm gonna steal and use, just so you know. <laughs> um, so at Berkeley, you became pre-med, why medicine? I really couldn't think of any other profession. It was just ingrained in my mind and nothing came close. It was, you know, the privilege of being a physician that really, uh, you know, gave me the energy to move uh, through a lot of uh, hard work and the privilege of meeting somebody and gaining that trust and impacting their lives. It just, there was just nothing close to that. And I always loved the scientific and mathematic uh, part of it, but I also really enjoyed the human interaction that was really important for me. So engineering was a close second, but uh, medicine was always the first um, love. And I think surgery really put a, a 
higher stakes on that. It is it to me at that time was something that was more challenging. It was just more. Everything that you did was physically demanding, um, intellectually demanding, emotionally demanding, and to have the courage to uh, to do surgery that was so attractive. And now looking back, I think that everything that I had dreamed about was actually true, and I'm, I'm I couldn't be more pleased. You, you matriculated onto UCLA um, um, for for medical school, uh, and somewhere within that framework, you decided to go into surgery. Who motivated you, if anyone, to pursue that path? That's an interesting question. I um, I actually started medical school the very same year that my dad passed away from lung cancer. And so he and I had always talked about um, medicine and what I could do, what I would do. And he always envisioned me as a surgeon. And so that laid the groundwork. And I really loved the technical aspect of surgery. And I I always kind of felt that background motivation uh, from discussions that I had with my dad. So a large part of that was an influence of my father and him knowing me and what where I could um, apply my skills. But as always, it's it's a factor of mentorship. And um, Stan Ashley at UCLA was an incredible mentor. Um, I was a first year medical student. I went to the Department of Surgery. I looked up the first name on the door and it was Stan Ashley. And I literally knocked on his door. And uh, from there, he invited me to lab meetings. My first surgery that I ever saw, he did for a gastrectomy for ulcer disease. So that tells you um, how long ago that was, (laughs) (laughs) but it made an impact on me. And, uh, and he really guided me not only through medical school, but, uh, at the Brigham, he became an attending and I followed him there for residency. And, um, you know, to this day, he, uh, I, I, I thank him for just guiding my way. So, I mean, you said something that was extremely fascinating. Your, your father had always envisioned you being a surgeon. Um, I've heard that before, but only from individuals whose parents were surgeons. <laughs> What was your dad's view of surgery and and what the profession entailed? um, And how did he sort of equate that with your personality and your skills? Well, his experience was mostly personal. And that was uh, when he was diagnosed with lung cancer. So in his mind, there were people who were going to solve his problem. And he really had this vision of the surgeon being able to take control of the situation, to physically get the cancer out, and that he would be better. And the surgical approach to his disease was was really uh, comforting, not only to him, but to, to us, his family, that, okay, once we get through surgery, we're going to be good. Um, and medical oncology, radiation oncology, you know, he was uh, eventually diagnosed with stage three, that they were kind of, um, 
you know, less successful. So it's not a function of really the professions, but just the approach. And so uh, he really saw that being able to use my hands and um, being very uh, technical, I, I grew up playing piano. And so he saw that um, being able to use all of these skills, intellectual, you know, technical, and also, you know, empathy and the approach that that was uh, a really good, a really good fit for me. And, and I agree 100%. I'm, I'm so thankful to the experience that I had with his surgeon, who interestingly, I did meet, um, you know, 20 years later. Uh, and, and actually that, that surgeon, uh, you know, he was just an incredible support at that time as well. And he encouraged me, um, had me read some books about surgery and uh, encouraged me to consider the idea and to consider the obstacles, especially being a woman. You know, as you mentioned your father's passing from lung cancer, one of the things you said in the past is that you really wanted to distance yourself from the disease process. You know, I've, I've, I've actually known cardiothoracic surgeons whose family members have been afflicted with lung cancer uh, or cardiovascular disease, and that motivated them to go into the specialty. But um, I think we sort of underappreciate the, the trauma of seeing a, a loved one go through a specific disease process. And, and it would be, you know, uh, uh, understandable to want to distance from that disease process. Right. It, um, so the timing of it was, was impactful. Uh, my father passed away over the summer uh, and then that August, I was in school at UCLA for uh, the first day of school, and um, our anatomy class was uh, really my uh, my cadaver had died of lung cancer, and I didn't tell anybody what the immediate history was with me. I didn't want anyone to think of me as the person who you know is grieving. I really wanted a different identity to, to try to move on. Um, so it was, uh, it was difficult to, to face that and to kind of categorize what I had to do as a surge, as a uh, medical student, what I needed to do to move forward and to advance what my family's dreams were for me and to also deal with, uh, with my father's death. So the coping mechanism that I used was just to completely split them. And so got through anatomy class, got through that process, but uh, throughout medical school really didn't think about lung cancer, the disease, and that it would be part of my life in the future. I hoped it wouldn't as devastating as it is. And that surgery was a good fit for me. And, um, and that would be the way that I would deal with it. And uh, I think that that first fracturing of lung cancer in my professional career helped me cope with those first few years in uh, in medical school. You know, your, your ability to navigate this process uh, is basically our specialties game because you ended up becoming a cardiothoracic surgeon specializing in, in, in lung cancer. Uh, and that path led you to the Brigham and Women's Hospital for general surgery mm -hmm. residency. 
And you, you talk about some of your mentors there, uh, Dr. Larry Cohn and Dr. David Sugarbaker, who are giants uh, in our field. Uh, what role do they have in, in, in you becoming the surgeon you are today? Well, um, you know, I, they are two pillars of thoracic surgery, and I was just so fortunate to uh, actually have them as pillars of, of my career. Um, Dr. Cohn is an enigma. Uh, it's really hard to, to capture him with words, but uh, I like to call him a soft spot mentor. He was somebody who was irascible. He was difficult. He was alarming. But when you caught that soft spot, he, he would do anything for you. And he did anything he could to advance my career. He's very supportive, uh, you know, outwardly and behind the scenes, uh, really small check-ins. He'd show up to uh, presentations without any warning that I was giving. Uh, you know, throughout my career, he was so supportive. Um, and uh, Dr. Sugarbaker, uh, he, he was the spectrum of motivation, <laughs> a motivational mentor. He used every single strategy of motivation, uh, positive, negative, everything in between, but he really knew how to get the best out of people. And he really knew how to challenge people. And, and I really thank him for that. He's made me a better person, not just a better surgeon. So the Brigham and Women's Hospital is a old traditional program affiliated with Harvard Medical School. And like, you know, similar programs in the past, at least is at a certain phenotype of who went there and who graduated from there. Coming from California and Colorado, what were your, your thoughts about pursuing a, a, a training career at, at the Brigham? Uh, were there concerns? Were, were, what were your thoughts and strategies about going there? I really was going to go there, uh, you know, good or bad, or I just had this vision that that was the place to be, that that would give me the biggest, greatest opportunities for the future. And, uh, and I, I think it rang true and being there, I did not, uh, have a lot of barriers. I didn't see a lot of bias. Uh, when I was there as an intern, I had the first class of, uh, our first team of all women surgeons, um, to take care of, uh, an entire service. I had Mary Klingensmith as my chief. I had, uh, Amy Butler-Reed as a fourth. I had Mina Nathan as a junior resident, and then I was the intern. And so it was a very positive environment for women at the time. And uh, Yolanda Colson was a fellow. I think she was the first fellow at, uh, a thoracic fellow at the Brigham. And of course she had children and uh, research background that really, gave me the courage to pursue this. And um, Stacy Sue was my co-fellow. Uh, and I feel that it was a very supportive environment overall. So that, that's an incredible roster of individuals who go on to become leaders and developers of our specialty. Did you know of that level of diversity 
when you applied or when you went in an interview, were you surprised to see that level of diversity? I was surprised to see that level of uh, diversity. I was not surprised to see the caliber of people. Um, my co-residents, uh, my co-interns, um, Ed Soltes, Jimmy Wong, um, Caprice, Christian Greenberg, you know, these are people who uh, I still look to this day for advice and leadership. They're just amazing people. Uh, but I give the Brigham credit for recognizing that in a diverse crowd and knowing that uh, it really depends on the work and the individuals and not uh, other biases. So now you're a professor at Temple and uh, you are in the capper seat, so to speak, and, and young uh, students and trainees are looking towards you. Your experiences in the past, how does that shape how you uh, uh, develop your trainees and your strategies to, to have them achieve their goals? Uh, that's an interesting question because the times are different. And I think when, uh, when I was training, it was really focused on the individual. You individual are responsible for, for making your own success. And this is how I can guide you and such. But I think as we are um, in this time and this day, that it's incumbent upon us, the mentors, to create a system that's fair. And we can't just say, okay, you medical student or you resident, you work harder. This is how you do it. It's we've got to create a platform, an environment that allows the best people to rise to the forefront. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. We've looked at a lot of uh, evidence that, um, for instance, negotiations are very different for men and women. So if you were to look in a textbook, how do you negotiate? You're aggressive, you stand from a power position, you don't give up unless you're willing to you know, concede this. This type of aggressive negotiating is not perceived the same among men and women. And many of these uh, aggressive tactics that women take are perceived as negative. And so we can't tell everyone one, oh, this is how you negotiate for your first job. We can't say that and give that same advice. We have to create a system where it's fair, that the evaluation is fair, that the uh, training is fair, that the promotion is fair, the retention is fair. You know, So it's a different situation that we really have to work not towards, uh, not only towards helping each individual, but work towards creating a system that's unbiased, that's equitable and transparent. You know, that's an interesting point of view, um, which you know, I, I view it as a positive aspirational point of view. I think as you point out, uh, we've always advised, uh, the collective we has advised women to you know, be careful about negotiations because they don't want to be seen as too aggressive, you know, taking on that mas masculine phenotype. Um, and that goes all the way through advising women about um, the way they speak and, and vocal gravel. You talk about changing the system where the system accepts 
individuals and members uh, for who they are and not shaping them into a preconceived notion. Uh, you know, you are a, 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 a successful funded researcher uh, in the, the lung cancer uh, uh, landscape and the intersection of that and disparities, equity, and inclusion. And you have a wonderful publication called an, an Approach to Diversity and Inclusion in Cardiothoracic Surgery. And within it, your team develops what's called the spheres of implementation. And you talk about that environment. You talk about uh, everything starting from the individual, growing to the institution, thoracic surgery communities, and finally the global environment. You know, what can the individual do? I mean, we can imagine what the global environment and in, in our communities and in our institutions can do to, to um, have success in diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if I'm just, you know, you know, a, 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 a old country doctor trying to do the best I can with what I have, what can I do as an individual to make our spaces more inclusive? I think, uh, you know, every person will have different priorities and different influence. And that publication was really just to create a framework, just to give people uh, a scope of where we, where we do have influence. And uh, some people have influence at the, at the global level. And um, we definitely have leaders in thoracic surgery who work with uh, PACs and um, with government policy. But there are many of us who can act through uh, the thoracic surgery community, uh, women in thoracic surgery through our uh, workforce on diversity and inclusion and membership in these, uh, they're always so powerful. They're really, um, the leadership of these organizations is strong, thoughtful, and uh, really geared towards action. So if people want to impact our community, our thoracic surgery community, their options, or if maybe your, um, your influence is at your own institution as a program director or chief, or you as an individual, how do you um, address things like uh, recruitment? And how can you ensure that there's a fair assessment of residents as they go through your service? So it's not really a uh, prescription of what you should do. Uh, if you're interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion, there are just ways to uh, kind of spur the opportunities and say, these are all opportunities at whichever one suits you best, whichever one where you feel you have the most influence, that this is how you can act. And so I'm hoping that people will go far beyond that framework to actually help us with suggestions on, okay, this is what you can do as an individual. You know, Philadelphia is a is an incredibly uh, diverse and uh, culturally rich environment in Temple University uh, has a long-standing history of being uh, sort of that, that uh, safety net, uh, so to speak, for uh, many underserved populations. What, what type of things are you, are you and your team doing uh, to uh, mitigate the disparities that we see in, in thoracic oncology? I think a 
it goes back to what we had discussed about uh, curiosity, just being able to look at things from the perspective of the patient. And so one of the first things that we did was uh, a needs assessment uh, specifically for lung cancer um, screening, lung cancer perception, just to get an understanding of where our community is and what are their doubts about lung cancer and screening. And, uh, you know, we learned a lot about people's understanding of screening, and they were very happy to accept the idea of early detection and treatment, uh, but they just were unaware that screening for lung cancer was even a possibility. And so we didn't have to waste a lot of effort on convincing people of the value of screening. They were already there. We really focused our attention on uh, smoking cessation, lung cancer screening goes hand in hand with reducing risk. So I think one of the most important steps of what we did was a needs assessment uh, of our community. And that's listening to what our community needs before we just start acting and saying, oh, let's fix this, let's do this. Um, and so that was our first step. And so how did you, how did you do the needs assessment? How did you, how did you get into the community to hear their voice? And there were a couple uh, interesting strategies. One of them was using block captains. So there are a lot of uh, leaders block by block who manage everything from, um, you know, the way that the, the parks are or a sidewalk that's in need of repair, but also health messages. And so we tapped into the block captains to deliver the health message of smoking and uh, lung cancer screening. And we also created focus groups within um, housing communities. So looking at different neighborhoods and doing focus groups and then looking at community health-based organizations. Um, a lot of them are organized through uh, language and culture. So we have a mostly Spanish speaking uh, community center, and we did a focus group there. And then we looked at uh, a Chinese medical society, which is actually uh, looking at a lot of Asian patients and looking at focus groups there. So a smattering of different strategies, but really trying to listen to uh, barriers to screening and to uh, treatment for lung cancer. You know, these type of things, uh, these interventions, you know, working with block captains and, and listening to the voice of the community is unfortunately not that common uh, within our academic medical centers. Uh, oftentimes there's an Ivy Tower sort of mentality, even though uh, our centers may be adjacent to these underserved uh, communities. Was it difficult to motivate your team to go into the communities and, and work with with their community partners? And also, was it difficult for the communities to accept your team in there and, and work with you uh, for the betterment of, of their health? Uh, I would say that there was no barrier between the teams and the community. The, my team was thrilled to go out into the community to meet people when they're healthy and to look at uh, how we could best serve uh, their needs. And the community was very accepting. 
of our interest. And I think there was no barrier, you know, where the barrier really was, is in convincing the uh, leadership that this is a worthwhile endeavor. I mean, this takes time. A lot of it is volunteer time, but to really support us as surgeons to make that connection. And that's something that's really important is that we're not uh, getting people as the second or third consultation from you know a gatekeeper provider that we are accessible to the community. This is what we do. We're we have a place in a multidisciplinary team, and that we as surgeons are not isolated from this neighborhood. That we are part of it, and we want to be part of the solution. And we are you know we are available to everybody. I like how you said that. Uh, we surgeons, you know, we cardiothoracic surgeons are part of this community. Um, and, and I, I think that's uh, key is that, um, and you, you touched upon that in regards to your own experiences with your own, with your dad, is that really surgeons make an impact in our community's lives, uh, our specific skill set, our specific point of view and how we, how we restore help and how we care for patients. I think it's um, it's part of how we need to define ourselves in the future. I, I think that it harms our profession to be confined to the technical skills within the operating room. I mean, we have so much more to offer, not only to our colleagues in our hospital uh, in terms of multidisciplinary care, but I think that, um, you know, part of a large part of the reward that we get is that connectivity that we have with our patients and uh, with their families and also with the community. And I think that it is part of what we seek as physicians is to have that connection and really preserving that and doing a lot of community-based work. I think that uh, like Dr. Elliot Surveys and Betty Tong, being part of lung cancer screening efforts is not only rewarding, but it's essential to the quality of these programs. You know, we are recording this at the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we do see that, that there are disparities in, in uh, underserved populations and, and thoracic oncology care, uh, that, and you are fighting those disparities. Um, but we have also seen that the COVID-19 pandemic itself uh, either augments those disparities or creates new disparities that we didn't even think about, um, especially with the delay in lung cancer screening. Uh, what have, have you seen this sort of uh, uh, compounding of problems with the COVID-19 pandemic? And then um, um, how is your team addressing those challenges? It's an interesting question. We really looked at our data over the past two years. And I think it's a testament to our leadership that they let us begin screening probably three months after Pennsylvania shut down um, elective uh, services. So starting in June, July, we were able to start lung cancer screening again. Uh, we had to pivot to a telemedicine platform. And one of our residents, Jessica Magarinos, is working on this uh, and looking at how that transition went. Of course, we had much fewer 
lung cancer screens. But that being said, we were able to preserve a uh, screening, a reporting of the results and follow-up care. And we do this in a what we call a single visit um, strategy to try to decrease the number of visits and missed visits that patients would have. So we were able to preserve this single visit paradigm, transitioning it to telemedicine. And actually patients really appreciated that they were able to do their screen, come to the hospital in and out, and then get a lot of their counseling done via telemedicine. And um, different from a lot of other experiences, we did not see stage migration. We did not see more people uh, with advanced cancers. Uh, we saw the same proportion. And interestingly, we did not see a drop off in the level of education or the age of um, participants, meaning that uh, older patients and um, people who may not necessarily be technically savvy that they were still able to navigate through telemedicine. And so it's encouraging. And I think, again, it's a testament to our leadership that they were committed to lung cancer screening and preservation of our, uh, our community um, and their health. You know, it's interesting that Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services shows a pretty equal adoption of telehealth amongst its Medicare beneficiaries who are black, African-American and white. And uh, the Pew research has shown an extremely high percentage of black African-American adults um, have a smart device uh, and are internet connected. As you adopted telemedicine and telehealth within your program, uh, do you see that as a a, a way of of mitigating disparities or, or does it increase disparities? I think both. I think that there's certainly um, a way to increase the reach using telemedicine. And so people who are capable of telemedicine and it facilitates them getting home and taking care of other responsibilities um, and doing telemedicine at you know a quick visit over phone, that that's helpful, but also that it doesn't completely replace an in-person visit. And so for people who cannot uh navigate the technical aspects that we need to have the uh, the in-person opportunity but um i think it's really uh not either or it's definitely an issue of supporting both methods and maybe even more novel techniques and more uh innovation in this field because you know anywhere from two to 6% of our eligible population is getting screened and that's not sufficient. We need to do better. So whether it's integrating telemedicine, um, adding it, adding a different platform, um, it's, we have a lot of work to do. You know, uh, you are a a great advocate for, for patients and the communities in which we serve, uh, but you're also an advocate for our trainees and, and how we uh, train the next generation of cardiothoracic surgeons. Um, and within uh, many of your publications, you, uh, including the spheres of implementation, you talk about how we should create and how we can create an inclusive environment for our trainees. What, what are sort of the big ticket items um, we as uh, cardiothoracic educators uh, 
should do to create that in welcoming environment for our, our trainees? Well, I think probably um, one of the most important uh, concepts that I uh, use with training is this foundation of wellness. And a lot of times people think of wellness as, well, that's one of the softer issues. That's something that, you know, it, it's not a hardcore knowledge-based, uh, you know, skill. But uh, in reality, it is the, the core of, of how we can get through training. Um, and wellness is not defined as time away from the hospital. And we know this because COVID put a lot of our trainees out of the hospital at home and they were miserable. They really wanted to do the job. They wanted to advance. They wanted the cases. They wanted to be here. And so wellness, as it defined, as it's defined in cardiothoracic surgery is advancing in our field. And so trying to think of that, not in terms of uh, duty hours and trying to think of wellness, not in terms of, uh, you know, a day off so that you can do what you want to do. It's really ingrained in all of training that we're aspiring towards a goal, whether we're faculty members or uh, medical students or trainees, that we have very clearly defined goals and that we're making progress. Um, in addition to that, there has to be some interconnectivity that we talked about, whether it's with the community or collaborations of research or a good relationship with uh, faculty members. And so really finding that interconnectivity and uh, community in our training program is important. Uh, and then when you're looking at what's the value, what are what value do you bring to the institution? Everybody feels that they want to be valued, that what their work, what they're doing is the best that they can do. Uh, you know, blood draws and transportation, these are not issues of value. These are, these are just scut work where people don't feel valued. If you can get them to function at the highest level of their ability, that's where they create value. But again, these issues of wellness, uh, we can't drill that into the heads of the, uh, of the trainees. That's beyond their control. It's really our responsibility as uh, program directors and faculty to look up to the leadership and to ask for resources to support the interconnectivity and mentoring, the uh, relevance to training and to really measurable advances. So, um, you know, it's a different way of looking at training as opposed to knowledge-based and practice-based learning. It's a, more of an overarching philosophy that this is how we keep our residents well and progressing. You know, as I, I like to tell um, uh, my students and trainees, you're not a widget, but you're an asset. And, uh, and so you have to be shown that you're valued Especially uh, as, as I said, we're, tape, we're taping this during the COVID nineteen pandemic. You know, our residents are 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 at the tip of the spear, just as we are, and and are putting themselves at risk just as we are, and they should be lauded for that, um, just as we have been. So as we 
come to a close, I always ask our leaders, what is your view of CT surgery in the future? Where are we going, or especially going from your perspective? I think that uh, we've we've done a great job to preserve, uh, you know, a multidisciplinary reach that a lot of uh, tumor boards that I've experienced have been run by surgeons and that a lot of programs related to multidisciplinary care has been run by surgeons. But I think that we're really headed to having more impact on our communities directly, not just within the hospital walls, but as we spoke about uh, being part of the community, showing people what we do as surgeons, trying to decrease the distance between patients and thoracic surgeons, or even more importantly, community members and thoracic surgeons, that you don't have to have an illness to have an understanding or even a relationship with a thoracic surgeon, that whether it's through uh, nonprofit organizations or uh, outreach programs or community-based lung cancer screening, like we discussed, uh, there are many ways that thoracic surgeons can be more connected And I think that I'm seeing a lot of that uh, among not only my colleagues, but particularly among trainees who feel that need to have more relevance than just what they can achieve within the hospital walls. Well, those are a wonderful view of our our great specialty. I want to thank you, Dr. Sherry Erkman, for providing us your insights today on on Same Surgeon Different Light. I haven't said this before uh, on this podcast, but go Bears. Uh, a fellow uh, Cal alum, and um, I really appreciate all that you do to advance our specialty. And thank you. No, likewise, I'm I'm so pleased to have this time to speak with you. And I couldn't be more thrilled with what you and Dr. Varghese are doing to uh, to advance our field and and to learn more about our colleagues. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.